Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb, and this is the premature discussion of 2022 episode. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the midterms. Uh, There's been a whole lot of things that have happened over the past couple of days that, you know, not that we want to be looking forward to 2022 at this point anyway, but I think that it's important that we do a preliminary look at what's going to be happening over the next two years in terms of specifically the Senate elections that are coming up. Uh, We're also going to look at a little bit of a where are they now in terms of Trump administration officials, uh, and we're also going to talk about some other major news stories from throughout the week. So the 2022 Senate elections that are happening, again, in two full years, um, there are 14 Democratic seats and 20 Republican seats that are going to be up for grabs. So I'm not going to run through every single seat because a lot of them, like New Hampshire and New York, uh, are pretty safe one way or the other. But the really interesting thing that is going to happen um, in this election is that there's a couple of Republican incumbents who have decided not to run in 2022. So we have um, Toomey in Pennsylvania, who's a Republican who has said that he is not running. In North Carolina, um, Richard Burr is not running, and he's a Republican incumbent. And then Rob Portman, who just announced really recently that he is not going to be running um, for re-election in Ohio's Senate seat in 2022. So that's three seats that are definitely within reach for the Democrats. Ohio and Pennsylvania are already swing states, um, and especially I think it's significant that Pennsylvania voted Democratic in the 2020 general election. Um, North Carolina, the fight there, for especially for the Senate seat, came really close. It just, you know, didn't work out at the last minute. Um, and then Ohio, it'll be really interesting to see how the Democrats kind of reallocate funding um, to that district. And we'll go into that a little bit more later. Um, the other interesting races, um, Arizona and Georgia, that's Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock, respectively, Those two races are really interesting because they are both running from special elections, so they'll only have two years in office by the time that their Senate race comes around again. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the progress made by the Biden administration and by the democratically controlled Senate in 2022 influences that election. Um, So both of those seats are democratically held right now, but are kind of considered to be vulnerable because we don't know. Um, kind of how the next two years is going to influence politics in Arizona and Georgia, which were two blue pickups from this from this past election. The other set of interesting races that might not be competitive, but, you know, if parties play their cards right, they could be really competitive. Um, there is Florida, um, and that's Marco Rubio's seat. Um, and the interesting thing about the Florida race is that there's also going to be a gubernatorial race in Florida in 2022. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, which candidates that might potentially run for Senate end up running for governor and vice versa. Um, And Marco Rubio, you know, he's kind of laid low um, over the past couple of weeks with with impeachment and with the outcome of the riot on the Capitol. Um, And while, you know, obviously he's firmly on one side, we aren't seeing him in the headlines as much as we are um, with Uh, Holly or Ted Cruz. So it's interesting to see if he's hedging his bets for, you know, another presidential run in 2024, or whether he is kind of prepping for a different race um, in 2022. So again, Florida 
voted for Trump in a pretty wide margin um, in 2020. So it's interesting to see if, you know, the the Democrats end up funneling more funds towards Florida or Ohio, considering that I think that both of those seats could be considered somewhat vulnerable, um, especially with Ohio. Obviously, we don't have an incumbent anymore, so there's no incumbent advantage. But with Marco Rubio, you know, he has a high approval rating in Florida, just looked at, looking at the polls. Looks like he has around a 48% approval rating right now. So it'll be interesting to see if his kind of internal popularity and his his like external disapproval will play a role in that election. And again, Florida is considered a swing state, so it's totally possible that a strong Democratic candidate could win in that state. Um, but again, it's just a matter of messaging and a matter of platform um, for that kind of election. And then the other two interesting races that I want to talk about um, are Indiana and Iowa. So in Indiana, Todd Young is the incumbent, and he has not said that he's not running. Um, but we have a new popular Democratic politician from Indiana in Pete Buttigieg. Um, and as you know, I'm sure some of you know, uh, currently Pete Buttigieg is the transportation secretary. And of course, he is a former presidential candidate and the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Um, and you know, we don't know if he's going to stay in that transportation secretary role over the past, over the entire four years. But my thought is that he is going to kind of use um, the, his role as transportation secretary to get some national policy, policy experience under his belt and kind of stay out of anything incredibly controversial over the next two years. So, you know, transportation policy, I could fight about it all day, but it's not something that's particularly, you know, sexy or dramatic. Um, and it's not something that's going to be at the forefront of the news every single day. So in essence, Pete Buttigieg is getting policy experience. He has a national job um, and he's getting enough press coverage to keep him in the news, but not at the front of the news. So he can set himself up potentially for, you know, a Senate run in 2022 or later, or even, you know, another presidential run in 2024 or 2028. So that's a thought. I don't know how competitive Indiana is going to be um, otherwise. There are other Democratic politicians who come out of Indiana, but I'm not sure how competitive that race will be um, if there isn't someone with, like, national, bringing national attention to the race. So I do see it as potentially a pickup if we have the right candidate in that race, but we'll have to see. Um, and then the last race that I want to talk about is Iowa. So Chuck Grassley is the um, incumbent in Iowa. And Iowa was, uh, there was a lot of attention on Iowa in 2020. And that was the race between the incumbent Joni Ernst and Teresa Greenfield, who was the Democratic candidate. And there was a lot of national attention on the race. Um, and people really thought that there was a strong chance that, you know, they might be able to flip another seat there. But, you know, the election actually, despite the fact that Teresa Greenfield had, you know, I would say national attention and she had um, like national popularity, um, the it was not a close election almost at all. It was 51.8% to 45.2%, which is a fairly large margin um, and may make us believe that Iowa is not a race that we can achieve a pickup in. However, the incumbent is Chuck Grassley who, again, if you follow politics at all, um, he's an old dude. I just looked it up. He is 87 years old, which means in two years, he's going to be 89 years old 
and he's going to run for Senate. Like, I don't think that he's actually going to be running. Um, And again, without that incumbent advantage, I think that there's a really strong chance that the Democrats can pull off another pickup there. But it's really going to come down to who the candidate is and and is also going to kind of come down to the fact that if the Democrats, you know, there's new leadership with the DNC, but if the Democrats do not reform um, their policy and their messaging towards rural candidates and audiences, I'm not convinced that, you know, any pickups in like the deep south or in kind of like the rural Midwest are going to be effective. So I think that only time will tell um, with this race in particular, but I do think that it's not, I'm not convinced personally that Chuck Grassley is going to make a bid for re-election. Although, you know, I would say the same thing about Dianne Feinstein, although she just, um, you know, filled out her paperwork to run for re-election and she, I think, is going to be older than Chuck Grassley is now um, when she is running for re-election in California. So never say never, um, but I think that that will probably be news that comes out within the next year. Um, And of course, not having an incumbent in the race will completely change the entire manner of the race. Um, And it'll change it a lot from things more focused on, you know, Chuck Grassley's, whatever, 30, 40, 50 years in the Senate um, to actually talking about policy, which I think will kind of make it all a lot more effective. And again, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the Democrats hold on to a really slim majority right now. It's 50-50 with Vice President um, Kamala Harris breaking the tie. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, public approval for the Biden administration increases enough so that people are, you know, in support of increasing the Democratic margin um, in the Senate, or if they, you know, are nervous about checks and balances and things like that, or there's extreme disapproval with the Biden administration, and voters decide to, you know, give more seats to Republicans in order to increase some checks and balances. I'm also not going to get into the House races today because there's many of them, and I don't think there's enough news to talk about. Um, But it will also be interesting to see, again, if Democratic messaging and policy is actually, you know, again, effective to target, um, you know, rural and southern audiences, because as it stands, I don't think that it does. Um, And again, I think the new leadership within the DNC will be a major factor in that. But I you know, I'd really like to see the Democrats digging in on some policy positions that are definitely going to get them votes, you know, talking about universal broadband, talking about legalizing marijuana, like all these policies have really high approval ratings. um, And they just are things that the Democrats need to jump on and they need to campaign on those issues instead of issues that, you know, don't have as as wide of support. Um, And then they need to actually implement those policies once they campaign on them. So, As I said last week, and I said kind of in the beginning of this episode, uh, it's going to come down a lot to the Biden administration and, you know, if promises made were promises kept. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that all works out. The the, the final race I kind of mentioned at the beginning, but the race that I am really going to be looking at um, because I now, you know, my family lives in Pennsylvania, is the Pennsylvania Senate election. And again, Toomey is not running um, and a we know that um, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is considering a Senate run. Um, and John Fetterman is 
a gr- I think, a great candidate um, in that he's extremely genuine um, and genuine in a way that doesn't seem fake genuine. Um, I think a lot of voters can tell the difference between candidates who are only pretending to be real to get your vote versus, you know, candidates who actually are the way that they are. And it's clear that he's very committed to the issues that he campaigns on. Um, So again, I think that he is a genuine candidate who is going to, you know, run on issues that he cares about, talk about them, and then really work to implement that policy. Um, So we, you know, he hasn't officially filed the paperwork to run, um, but he has, you know, an exploratory committee and he's been raising money. Um, And it certainly seems like he has pretty significant support. So it'll be interesting to see who else decides to run in Pennsylvania. That primary and that general election will be really interesting to watch. And again, I think another strong chance for a pickup in Pennsylvania. Ohio as well with no incumbent. Um, We already know that there are people who have declared that they are running for that seat. Um, One of them is Tim Ryan, who's a congressman for Ohio 13th District. Um, And as people have noted, they are currently redistricting redistricting in Ohio, um, which basically means that they're just redrawing the lines between congressional districts, otherwise known as gerrymandering. Um, And in Ohio, it's controlled by Republicans, and Ohio 13 is a democratically controlled seat. So um, there's been a conversation that his seat might not even exist after redistricting. So it'd be a great opportunity for him to kind of move up the ladder. Um, And then there's a lot of other people who have kind of hinted that they're going to run. And I'm sure we'll see a lot more of that in the next couple weeks. This is a side note, but also kind of right on this conversation. Um, We are in the beginning of 2021, and these elections are not going to happen until the end of 2022. And I'm talking about it because I think that electoral politics are really interesting, and I kind of like to see how it all frames out. But there is absolutely no reason why candidates should be declaring that they're running two years before an election. I really feel strongly that you know, the longer we draw out elections, the more chaotic they're going to become, the worse candidates will kind of get into the race. Um, And I think that if we, you know, I think we need to go back to the days when, you know, we only campaigned six, eight months before an election. Um, You know, because by the time 2022 Senate elections and House elections are over, we're probably going to be six months into the 2024 presidential election. Um, And I think that it takes a lot of time away from governing and puts way too much time into campaigning, which, again, even though I like electoral politics and I think it's really interesting and cool to watch, the point of campaigning is ultimately to govern. And if, you know, candidates are spending all of their time back at their home state campaigning and fundraising and all of those things, um, they're not in D.C., they're not governing, they're not actually doing their jobs. Uh, And that's a bad thing, I think, for a lot of reasons. Um, and if it were up to me, which it's not, but it should be, um, that you wouldn't be, I don't think that candidates should be allowed to campaign until the year of the election. So I don't think that any candidate should even be allowed to register um, their campaign until the, like, until 2022. So in, they shouldn't be able to start campaigning campaigning until January 2022. They shouldn't be able to fundraise like it just i just think that it would you know increase the accountability of these elected officials and it would force them to do their jobs for a longer amount of time 
that's how I feel. Um, and people will fight with me on that, but I think that it would do a lot to make our government work a little bit better. Then again, you know, while we're on the conversation of the Senate, the Senate is kind of in chaos right now. Um, you know, as I said, there's a 50-50 split with Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker. Um, and there's been a lot of debate between Majority Leader Schumer, who's also up for election in 2022, as a side note, um, and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell about power sharing. And the argument that McConnell is making is that the last time there was a tie in the Senate, there was a completely unique power sharing arrangement. Um, And so they've been kind of arguing back and forth about um, the most effective way and the most fair way to you know, split up Senate assignments and things like that. However, I think that it stands to reason that, you know, the Democrats, yeah, they have 50 seats and the Republicans have 50 seats, but the 50 seats that the Democrats hold represent 41 million more people than the Republicans. So anyway, I just think that it's, um, you know, it's an interesting debate to have about how power sharing should work between you know, quote unquote, 50-50 when the power balance and the people that they're representing is really, there's such a discrepancy between the two groups. And the other interesting debate that's been happening in the Senate is um, about the filibuster and about legislation to get rid of the filibuster. Um, So the filibuster, if you don't know, uh, it's basically, it's a procedure where you try to, it's one person who is able to delay or entirely prevent debate on a bill in the Senate. Um, And the important thing to note here is that while the filibuster has been around in the Senate forever, and it's been around in other governmental bodies as well, um, the really interesting thing about the House and the Senate is that they're able to create their own rules entirely. Like, there's no specific provisions um, about, like, standard operating procedure in the Constitution. So even though the filibuster is one of these things that's, like, deeply entrenched in Senate culture, it does not have to be. So it could easily be repealed, Um, And the debates between the two parties, the Democrats say that it is, you know, a filibuster basically is just overriding democracy, and one person can hold the entire Senate basically in a headlock um, and just stop any kind of legislation from getting through. And the Republicans argue that it's a, you know, a way to build coalitions. Um, And so you have to create a large group of people who support a certain policy to... um, override the filibuster. In my opinion, uh, the filibuster, again, in its pure, in the purest sense of the filibuster, yes, it's a way to build coalitions. It's a way to ensure that policies that you are creating are representative of a large group of people. But again, the Democrats have 50 seats that represent 41 million more people than the 50 seats that the Republicans hold. So for one individual to hold, you know, basically all of the Senate hostage um, to, like, stop these policies from being created is completely broken. And I think that it's the reason, you know, there's a really, really low approval rating for Congress in general, for good reason, because Congress doesn't get anything done. um, And it's just a lot of posturing. And one of the ways that we can make the Senate more effective is if we get rid of a policy that does not actually aid democracy because it doesn't if if 41 million 
more people support a policy, then that policy should be the one that, that gets approved. And I feel that that is a fairly reasonable thing to say. But again, you know, people will fight with me on that. And the other thing on this note um, is that, you know, Rob Portman in Ohio, who said that he is not running for re-election, the reason that he said he wasn't running for election is because of partisan gridlock, or, excuse me, partisan deadlock. And I think that it's really funny that he is retiring because he doesn't like partisan deadlock, um, because he's a Republican senator, you know, he's there's he's one of 50 he can actually make an active change on partisan deadlock the reason that partisan deadlock happens is because of policies like the filibuster you know so if he were actually able to um, be confident and go against his state party platform uh, he would be able to overcome a lot of partisan gridlock um and so I just think it's really interesting that instead of, you know, trying to get in a fight or trying to push against any norms, he said that, you know, I give up, I'm retiring. That frustrates me personally. Um, and I think that there's a lot of senators and a lot of people in government who have similar sentiments of, oh, well, you know, why does all this partisan gridlock happen? It's like, be- because there are policies with embedded within the culture of the House and the Senate that naturally ensured that democracy is not fulfilled. Um, And so let's hope moving forward that enough senators end up supporting um, getting rid of the filibuster so that we can actually get things done. Um, You know, right now we have 48 out of the 50 Democratic senators who have said that they support getting rid of the filibuster. And then the two that we're missing are Kristen Sinema from Arizona and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, which is not a surprise to anyone. So again, these votes probably won't come up in the next couple of weeks, but it will be interesting to see how this debate changes um, and whether some of these Republican senators who are not running in 2022 decide that this is their chance to kind of go against Republican leadership um, and actually make some real changes in how effective the Senate can be at creating legislation that helps regular people. My last note on the Senate um, is kind of talking about how the Democrats specifically should go about uh, these elections. Um, And something that I found super interesting, um, you know, I campaigned for a ton of different Democratic Senate candidates uh, in 2020. I made phone calls for, I don't know, probably eight or 10 of them. Um, and, you know, those are really great experience. And I found a lot of really great candidates that I like a lot. But all of the Senate races had an incredible amount of national attention on them. So like specifically South Carolina, it was uh, Jamie Harrison, who is, was the Democratic candidate, who is now the chair of the DNC, which is very exciting. And he was against Lindsey Graham, the Republican incumbent. And, you know, that race was very interesting because for a while the polls kind of indicated that, oh, maybe Jamie Harrison is like going to win. Maybe it's going to be a really close race. And it ended up not being a close race at all. Um, And we saw this with a ton of different races. We also saw it in Maine. Um, Susan Collins, um, who is the incumbent there, we, you know, we all really thought that there was a strong chance that she was going to lose. Like all of the polls showed her behind. Um, 
like losing by a significant margin. And it ended up again being like a huge win for her. Um, so I think that what we need to do as like as the Democratic Party, uh, you know, I think it's important that we don't nationalize local races anymore. Um, and I think that candidates have done a fairly good job of making sure that they're focusing on local issues and being responsive to local issues instead of national issues. But I think it's important that state parties and the national party don't push people from outside the state to go in and and fund um, the race. I just think that it will end up being um, a better race if it's more localized. You know, that's the point of having local representatives is that they are actually responsive to those local issues and they're campaigning on a statewide platform instead of a national platform. And when you're getting funding and support from all over the country, um, you know, I think that it's easy to go the route of, okay, well, I'm going to talk about, you know, all these national issues instead of things that are going to specifically affect my constituents right now. And again, I kind of said this earlier on, but this is definitely a matter that um, the DNC needs to address um, and it needs to put a little bit more focus on helping state parties create party platforms that are responsive to their local constituents. And then, you know, using those platforms instead of like one national platform to campaign. Um, And again, creating and promoting legislative and policy problems that are actually responsive to rural and southern voters. I've said it once, I'll say it a million times, like talk about infrastructure, talk about, um, you know, universal broadband. There's so many things that they could talk about that I don't think the Democratic Party is taking advantage of. Um, And so I hope that moving forward, there is a little bit more, you know, we we campaign a little bit more carefully in those states. Um, If just for the you know, we don't have to be heartbroken on election night when Susan Collins wins by five or six points, because I don't think that my heart can take that again. So that was my, you know, very long conversation on the 2022 Senate races. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that we will get a lot more news on those races moving forward as we actually, you know, get even slightly close to election day. Um, and once those races take form, we'll talk about it more. Um, The next thing I want to talk about is a little bit of like a where are they now with Trump administration officials because we got some news um, over the past couple days about kind of what the Trump administration, what the legacy of the Trump administration is going to look like, you know, post White House. So first of all, um, Donald Trump set up the office of the former president. um, So he will, you know, be a apparently doing some kind of policy work through there um, and some lobbying through there. Uh, We don't know anything about it other than the name. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when he, you know, eventually emerges um, and whether he, you know, my thought, my my concept, um, you know, he's not listening to this, so he's not getting any ideas from me. At least, I mean, I hope not. But, um, you know, I think that he's going to create like a media organization kind of akin to a, like a Breitbart or a Fox News. Um, and then he can, you know, platform himself constantly and he doesn't have to be worried about being deplatformed like he was on like every single social media. So anyway, we don't know much about 
him, about his family, about what's going on there. But again, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. So the other news that came out um, is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was the press secretary for a couple years, kind of in the middle of the administration, is going to be running for governor of Arkansas in, again, 2022. So not to be talking about midterms again, um, but yeah, so she is going to be running for governor in 2022 in Arkansas. You know, it's a statewide election um, and it doesn't even have like technically national implications because it's not a Senate race. But it is interesting that, uh, you know, former Trump officials are kind of branching out and running for office Um, because they were, you know, they did get a national platform from um, running with Donald Trump's administration. So it'll be interesting again to see like if she's popular in that race um, and what ends up working out there. Uh, And I was, you know, doing some research on some other officials just to see what they were going to end up um, doing in kind of a post-Trump world. A lot of them have been very quiet, um, I think, because they left the administration kind of battered and bruised um, and they need some time to kind of recuperate before they like announce future plans. So I was specifically doing some research into Mark Meadows, um, who was the chief of staff for the last year or so of the administration. And what's interesting there actually is that he used to be a congressman from North Carolina. And when he resigned to go um, and be the chief of staff, um, eventually, Madison Cawthorn, um, who is now like the youngest member of the House of Representatives, also a, a very strong, staunch conservative um, and a, a questionable and controversial figure, is what I'll say, um, actually took his seat. So it's just interesting that um, there's that connection there. But people have been, you know, again, as I said earlier, um, the incumbent in North Carolina is not running for Senate, who is a Republican. So there is an opening for another, uh, you know, Republican candidate to run in his place in North Carolina. And he has said that he is not running as of now. So we don't really know what his future plans are. um, But as of now, he's saying that he's not running for Senate in North Carolina. But, you know, I could see, you know, depending on what like the institutional memory is. Um, in America moving forward in a year or so if we've kind of recovered and forgotten from the Trump, forgotten the Trump administration, maybe he'll see it as an opening to get back into the national um, spotlight. Or maybe this is the end of him um, politically just because he didn't want to continue being involved. But we'll have to see where that ends up. And then the other person that I was looking at was um, Kaylee McEnany, who was the final um, press secretary at the end of the administration, and in a surprise to no one, uh, she was in talks with Fox News to eventually, I guess, become a commentator on the channel. Um, but it looks like those talks have stopped for a while. I'm not sure what's going on there. Obviously, you know, I don't have any like inside scoop. But now doing some research, um, it looks like she was supposed, to, like she had created a contract to work with. Um, Fox News after she left the White House, but now it looks like that kind of, that relationship is on hold right now. Um, So that'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with her. Um, A personal comment here, just a side note, Uh, Kayleigh McNaney is my least favorite member of the Trump administration behind Donald Trump. Um, And, you know, I'm really looking forward to not 
seeing her again on national television or anywhere. Um, I just really, really, she rubbed me the wrong way for like a myriad of reasons. But just as a side note, not my favorite person in the Trump administration. And then, of course, you know, the Trump administration had an incredible amount of turnover throughout the four years. Um, I'm just reading a statistic now that Donald Trump's, quote, ATM turnover uh, is 92% as of January 20th, 2021. So all of the kind of senior members of the staff that doesn't include cabinet secretaries um, ended up either like retiring or just quitting. Um, and it's really interesting actually looking at the graphs of um, the turnover between different presidential administrations. Um, and I can like, you know, link this somewhere. But, uh, you know, the Donald Trump 92% turnover is pretty significantly higher than other administrations. Um, Obama had a 71% turnover. Um, Bush had a 63% turnover. Um, and again, within Trump's Donald Trump's first year in office, he got a 35% turnover. So, you know, it's just there's too many people to talk about where they all are now. Um, but it'll be interesting to see in a couple years how many of these people are in jail, um, including, you know, Donald Trump and members of his own family. The other bit of Donald Trump news that I think is important to cover um, is that the Senate impeachment trial has been officially scheduled for mid-February. So, you know, they delivered the articles of impeachment and they are beginning to kind of make all of those like necessary plans. And the thing that's just completely fascinating about this impeachment is that, you know, the first trial back uh, in a couple years ago was so chaotic. And there are all these explainers and articles and documentaries talking about like how impeachment worked. Um, and all of the senators, you know, kind of had to brush up on exactly what the procedure was. Um, you know, they're not allowed to have their phones on the floor. Um, there's just a it's it's a very regimented process. Um, and now that we're going through it the second time, everyone knows what they're doing. Everybody understands the entire process. You know, there's a lot of members of the impeachment team uh, who are Democrats who are experienced. They know what they're doing. They have an entire game plan kind of already set, which is one reason I think why this is moving so quickly. Um, but a couple interesting differences um, is that the impeachment trial, the first impeachment trial was overseen by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. But this trial is going to be presided by the Senate, Senate president pro tempore, um, who is um, a senator from Vermont, Senator Leahy, uh, who's actually an independent but caucuses with the Democrats. So that's just like an interesting change between those two trials. And, you know, over the past couple of days, we've seen Senate Republicans trying to stop the impeachment trial from happening. Both of those um, votes have been ineffective. So as of now, the trial will be happening. Um, and it is possible to, you know, impeach a president after he leaves office. And I'm not sure of like exactly all of the policies on this. And, you know, when the impeachment comes around again, I'll end up doing a lot more research. But, you know, basically, an impeachment like this, they could provide additional measures to stop him from ever being able to run for office again, um, which would be significant because we know that we've, he's already hinted at uh, running for president again in 2024. And, you know, an interesting joke that I have in my brain that everybody else tells me that I'm insane for even thinking. Uh, as I said earlier in the episode, 
uh, Florida has a Senate race coming up in 2022 and a gubernatorial race coming up in 2022. And Donald Trump's official uh, state of residency is Florida. Uh, So I think that him running for a statewide office in Florida would be absolutely chaotic and terrible, but it would be pretty funny if Donald Trump primaried Marco Rubio in his own state in 2022. I don't actually think that's going to happen, but it would be insane. I don't think that um, they'll be able to get enough votes to actually, you know, condemn Trump in any significant way, just because I think that uh, enough Republican senators are, you know, too afraid of pushing back against leadership. Um, Although, you know, there might be a handful of votes that go the other way. And again, I, I again, I mentioned this before, but I think the fact that there's three or four different Republican senators who are not running for re-election, they don't have that pressure to, um, you know, because a lot of Republican senators are worried about getting primaried from the right in their next election. With all these senators who aren't running again, running again I think that they have a lot more freedom to do what they think is best, um, you know, policy-wise versus rather what is best politically. Um, And that balance is very frustrating for us, but unfortunately is a major part of American politics. Um, So, you know, hopefully there is some kind of meaningful outcome um, because I I am afraid that if impeachment kind of just dies and that's it, um, we won't be able to move forward as a country Um, because there needs to be some kind of accountability Um, that happens on a national scale. And even though there is a couple of New York lawsuits that might end up being effective, that is just one state. Um, And I would like to see, you know, something happening on a national level to condemn the actions of Donald Trump and to, you know, make it really clear that this kind of like intense, intense nationalism and white supremacy is not an acceptable thing to do. Um, And it's not principles that are going to be accepted in America moving forward. And I am afraid that if, you know, we don't take some kind of substantial action, there won't be any kind of accountability and people will think that it's okay to hold on to these like really racist, terrible principles moving forward. Now, moving on from our little Trump corner, um, we are now officially a full week into the Biden administration and already it's been uneventful frankly, um, in that there's nothing chaotic that's happened. However, there have been a lot of actions that have been taken, um, and we can now see kind of the new Biden administration forming um, uh, over the past couple days. So we now have most of our cabinet members confirmed, um, specifically Secretary of State Antony Blinken is confirmed. Um, As I mentioned before, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is confirmed. The first ever female um, Treasury Secretary is confirmed and Janet Yellen. Um, So that's very exciting that we have a whole lot of new officials who are now confirmed and ready to start working. Um, And again, there's been just a slew of executive orders um, and actions that have been taken by the Biden administration. And, you know, he's just very much dismantled a whole lot of um, Donald Trump's orders and it's you know it's interesting people have been comparing what Donald Trump's goals were at the beginning of his administration and what he was actually able to accomplish 
versus Joe Biden and what he promised and what he wanted to accomplish. Um, and, you know, a whole lot of Donald Trump's promises came from dismantling everything that um, former President Obama was able to do in his eight years of the presidency. And he really wasn't able to accomplish all of those things. Meanwhile, Joe Biden kind of promises, promised that he was going to take down a whole lot of Trump era administrations and regulations. Um, and it certainly is clear that he is effective at that task. Um, but again, only time will tell about how much, how, how many of these um, policies will actually stick. But anyway, you know, last week I talked a lot about what he did on his first day. Um, but since then, he's done a couple other really important and interesting things. First of all, he um, scrapped the transgender military ban, um, which, you know, people have varying views on the military in the first place. Um, but I think that it's a really, really important step that he did for, you know, transgender and LGBTQ plus veterans and members of the military now, um, just to make the world in a more equitable place in a really simple and easy way. So I'm really glad that that was one of, you know, his top priorities this week. He also reinstated COVID-19 travel restrictions. Um, so we can't, go to Brazil or Europe anymore. I mean, if you were going to Brazil or Europe, um, you know, formerly, <laughs> before the ban, I'm not really sure what to tell you. Um, but yeah, there's there's now a lot more restrictions in place um, as to where we're allowed to go internationally, um, which I think is, you know, again, it's like a bare minimum policy. Um, now that there's all of these new strains that are being identified around the country. So there's just, there's a lot of fear right now about, you know, the pandemic getting worse before it gets better again. Um, and hopefully a lot of the um, new, you know, the new administration will really vamp up um, vaccinations so that more people are getting vaccinated. We have more, you know, production of vaccines. Personally, I can't wait to get vaccinated. I am, you know, an able-bodied 19-year-old, um, so I'm not even close to the top of the vaccine priority list, but I would love to get vaccinated as soon as possible. Can't wait for my turn to come, even though it probably won't be, you know, until the spring or the summer. But I'm hoping that, you know, in the next couple of months, hopefully before these new strains get completely out of control, um, we're able to kind of get things more you know, under control with vaccines um, and people who are high risk and old um, are able to get vaccinated and stay healthy. You know, there's beyond COVID, beyond environmental things, there's just been a million things that the Biden administration has already done. Um, so I'll, you know, again, I'll link somewhere a list of all of the executive actions that he's accomplished so far. But as I said last week, and as I said earlier in this episode, you know, suffice to say that he is, you know, doing promises made, promises kept, uh, and he is really reversing a lot of actions that the Trump administration accomplished that were not, you know, did not promote democracy, did not promote equality in any way. So hopefully these, this kind of fervent action will continue. Um, I think that it's really easy for you know, while we're paying attention to the Biden administration, they're going to be accomplishing all of these things. But then as soon as we look away, they kind of become stagnant. Um, and again, hopefully between the democratically controlled House, Senate and presidency, we're able to accomplish a lot of legislation over the next couple of years. Um, and kind of interesting, kind of right on that topic, um, H.R. 1 has officially been introduced to the House. 
Um, and this is gonna kind of an omnibus bill on um, voting rights. And as I was just talking about last week, voting rights is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, and so I'm really excited by this piece of legislation. And, you know, just reading kind of the description, it's called the For the People Act. And its description um, is basically to expand America's access to the ballot box, reduce the influence of big money in politics, strengthen ethics rules for public servants, and implement any um, other anti-corruption measures for the purpose of fortifying our democracy and for other purposes. So this is just such an important piece of legislation that, you know, again, should have existed earlier. Um, And... I think what we saw, I talked about this in my in my last episode, but, you know, a lot of these issues stay the same from week to week. The news cycle is fast, but not that fast. Um, we had a really significant attack on voting rights um, throughout the last administration, throughout the election. And I think it's really important that we, you know, especially the government takes steps to um, protect voters and protect the sanctity of the vote, um, because if we don't, uh, I'm I'm afraid of of how secure elections will be moving forward, um, either because of internal or external influence. I have not read the whole bill because it's very long, um, but there is a whole lot in there. Um, kind of things that we talked about last week um, in in terms of vote by mail, um, but also there's stuff on voter registration, same day registration, um, on, you know, encouraging minors to register to vote and ID laws and all that kind of stuff. So it will be very interesting to see how much of that bill stays the same, how much changes over the next few weeks as it's debated and all that. Um, thing that I will say on voting, um, I think what we got into a little bit of trouble with And, you know, again, people will argue with me on this, and I'm not 100% sure what my position is. But I think where we got into a lot of trouble with voting is that, you know, because of federalism and because of the political system that we live in, each state is allowed to create their own voting rules. So every state has a different method of vote by mail, a different method of voter ID laws, and all these different things. So, you know, that's why we can have a senator from another state contradicting the results of an election in um, Pennsylvania because, you know, each state has different rules uh, in terms of in terms of voting. So I think that a bill like this, which doesn't say, you know, every state has to follow these same rules, um, but instead kind of provides a little bit of a framework for how um, voting should work and 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 safety of voting and establishment of best practices and things like that will make elections more safe and more secure moving forward. And you know what, I'm kind of of the opinion that every state should have similar or the same rules because, you know, we all do live in different environments um and some places are more rural, some places are more urban, um but I think that if it were you know, a little bit more consistent from safe, from state to state, things might be a little bit safer and a little bit more secure. Again, this is not, I'm not 100% sure I even agree with myself here, um, but I think that there needs to be a large conversation um, over the next couple of years, probably before the 2022 midterms, about how we can make sure that elections are as safe and as fair as possible. Um, And I hope that this bill is just one step in it. Um, And I hope that, you know, we really do reestablish voting rights over the next couple of years.
So there's a lot to talk about that happened this week. I honestly, so much happened just today. I kind of can't get into everything. Um, but the last short story that I wanted to talk about that I thought was extremely frustrating but extremely interesting um, was a story about a journalist at the New York Times named Lauren Wolf. Um, and she used to be a uh, editor at the New York Times. And um, on Inauguration Day, she tweeted a picture of um, Biden's plane landing in D.C. with the caption, like, I have chills or something like that. And people were so frustrated by this tweet, specifically Republicans and conservatives, um, that the New York Times actually ended up dismissing her, um, which was extremely frustrating because there are so many journalists at the New York Times like the journalists who wrote the story about um, Joe Biden's Rolex and criticizing him for not being, you know, quote unquote, Scranton enough, um, who didn't realize that the Rolex actually belonged to his late son, Beau. Those journalists are still employed by the New York Times. But, you know, this independent journalist who tweeted a seemingly innocuous statement about, you know, Joe Biden landing in D.C. on Inauguration Day ends up getting fired. Um, and this has been a kind of major story among kind of like the journalism circle, um, and specifically with the New York Times. And it's been really frustrating to see. Because generally, I think that the New York Times does a really good job. I think that it's a well written paper. I think that it's really interesting. But instead of, you know, promoting high quality journalism that Lauren Wolf promoted, they are firing these journalists, which I just really don't understand because the whole point of journalism is to, you know, react to current events. Um, and it wasn't like she said, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, she said, I have chills looking at the new president coming into DC. Um, so I just I just wanted to bring that story up because I think that it's really interesting and really important to talk about because I think that there's been a vilification of journalists and journalism over the past several years of the Trump administration. And, you know, we really see that trend continuing into the Biden administration. Uh, and I just hope that that isn't a, a trend moving forward. I hope that we continue to you know, help journalists and support journalists to actually, you know, uncover a lot of what the normal people aren't able to see about our government. Um, and I think, you know, all of the journalism that was done over the past four years, uncovering a lot of not so good things that were done by the Trump administration, we wouldn't have been able to see without journalists. Um, so I just wanted to bring that story up, kind of a short note at the end of the show, um, just to, to get that a little bit off my chest about my frustrations about the New York Times and that story. And with that, that is the end of episode two of Sheep Thrills. Thank you so much for listening. I am really enjoying putting these shows together, I'm really having a great time, and I hope that you're having a good time listening to them. So once again, have a great week, wear a mask, um, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye!